We're going to start a new sermon series, not today, uh, next week. And we're actually going to be uh, beginning in the upper room uh, in the book of John. So if you get some time this week, I'd encourage you to uh, take out your Bibles and, and maybe read through John 13 as we begin looking at the end of Jesus' life. And so with that being said, I had the opportunity to pick whatever I wanted to to preach here this morning. And so naturally, I chose a passage in Ezekiel. I was telling Keith earlier this week that I was going to pick something simple, something familiar, and I read all kinds of new stuff here. And so that's my, uh, my warning for where we might be heading here today. Before we get into it, I just wonder if you've ever wondered what the difference is between a church and a country club. Have you ever thought about that? Because as I think about it, some people might say they're pretty similar, and maybe some people can't tell the difference. If you think about it, some of their participants, both the church and the country club, join in activities every week. Some only go occasionally, and then there are others who only show up on special occasions. Country club or church, small groups of members gather together throughout the week, but usually to share some sort of activity based on common interests. Generally speaking, most of the people look the same, enjoy the same status of life. Most members don't really like outsiders coming in because they might disrupt the way things are. Volunteers might be needed from time to time, but the real jobs are done by the paid staff. All the members expect leadership to meet their needs, and they certainly complain if they don't feel those needs are being met. And at some point, if they continue to be unhappy, they'll probably just leave and join another one in a different place that will meet their expectations. Am I talking about a country club or am I talking about a church? Now, hopefully, if you're here this morning, you understand that there should be something different. There should be something different in terms of the church. The question is, what? What makes it different, though? And so what I want to do to answer that question is take a tour somewhat of a vision of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 8 through 11, and then hit some highlights basically from Genesis to Revelation. So this is your time to get out your Bibles, buckle your seatbelts, and hang on for the ride. Let's start with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, I do pray that your word would be present among us this morning, that the, the things that we would learn about you would be edifying, they would be glorifying, and they would be true and right. I pray that you would encourage us and challenge us to see you in a fresh way here this morning. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So what's really the difference between the church and a country club? So I said, to answer the question, we're going to go 600 years before the time of Christ and before uh, the church existed at all. And we're going to the book of Ezekiel. I'm going to encourage you to open your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 8. I'm actually going to walk through chapters 8, 9, 10, and a portion of 11. 
But most of it will be in summary portion. I have the short verses up here, but especially we get into chapter 10, I think you'll want to have it open so you can kind of follow along as I'll be reading a couple longer passages here this morning. To give us some immediate context, Ezekiel is a prophet of God. I don't know if you know much about him, but the nation of Israel had split into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom had already been conquered by the Assyrians. And then their, the southern kingdom of Judah is in skirmishes with the Babylonians, the world power at the time. What has started to happen is the Babylonians have started to evade Israel or the southern kingdom of Judah and Jerusalem. And they've already been and attacked Jerusalem once. And they took some captives with them along with some items from the temple. And they took these captives and they brought them back to Babylon. And this first, what we call the deportation, is where Ezekiel was taken from Jerusalem to Babylon. And so you have a picture of Ezekiel, who's a prophet, called by God in Ezekiel chapter 1, who is living in Babylon. Jerusalem is... And the, and the temple and everything in it is under siege or at least in uh, danger of being attacked and conquered by the Babylonians. The year now, when we get to Ezekiel chapter 8, is about 592, 593 B.C. So he's been a captive for about five years. He's had a couple different visions to this point. But what I want to focus on is this one vision that spans Ezekiel 8 through 11. And so... If you look at chapter 8, in verse 4, we see the beginning of the vision. He's sitting in his house with some elders of Jerusalem in Babylon. And and the picture is God picks him up by his hair and takes him in like a dreamlike vision to Jerusalem and plops him down to the temple complex, which would include the outer court, the inner court, and the temple itself. And so in a dreamlike vision... Ezekiel is plopped down, so he has a scene in front of him of the temple, its surroundings. And Ezekiel sees and recognizes the glory of God. And that's what's happening in verse 4. He recognizes it because it was seen and identified in chapter 1. And so now we get the setting of we're looking at the temple and we're seeing the glory of God. But what comes next throughout the rest of chapter 8 is a series of terrible visions. And God brings him through the courts and then the inner sanctum and then the inner area with the priest. And what he's showing Ezekiel is a a sequence of progressively getting worse what the what is described as abominations to the Lord. So the first thing you see is in the outer courtyard is this big, huge temple. It's called the image of jealousy and some idol, maybe in relation to local king or God. And then after that, God shows them through uh, basically a hole in a wall, 70 elders of Israel. And they're all gathered together and they're waving uh, their censers of incense. And, and you get the idea that they're praying. Well, that's good, except all around the walls are images of foreign gods and idols within Jerusalem. And within the temple. And so the temple is being defied even further as these elders are praying and worshiping these false images that have now been carved in the walls of the temple. And then he goes further still and he sees a group of women who are crying over a guy named Tammuz. It's not a guy, it's a Sumerian god of Mesopotamia. And so there's this odd picture of there was a court for women, but they're not there. They're in a different place and they're they're weeping and they're crying over some foreign pagan god. And then lastly, 
Ezekiel comes uh, inside the inner court of the temple, where which was reserved for the priests to do their ministerial duties. And what Ezekiel sees is these 25 men, presumably priests, who are not servicing the altar as you would expect them to, but their back is turned to the altar and they are worshiping the sun. Something that was expressly forbidden in the scriptures and obviously another blatant act of idolatry. It's not a pretty picture. And this is God's point in showing Ezekiel, because what we're going to walk through next is going to be how God is going to respond. So take a look at the last verse of Ezekiel chapter 8. It's verse 18. God says, therefore, because of everything that I just showed you, which is the summary of Israel's spiritual state, wickedness and idolatry, he says, therefore, I will act in wrath. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. God says, I'm done. I'm done with Israel. I'm done with their idolatry. I'm done with the rebellion. My name, my temple will not stand for this. And so we get to chapter 9. In chapter 9, the first two verses, we have six executioners that are called up. I tend to believe they're angels. They have the likeness of men. And then you also have another uh, man who is described as clothed in linen, and he's carrying a satchel with a with a ink and maybe a tablet. And what we see is that God is going to give them commands. But there's an important verse that we need to see, and it's verse 3 of chapter 9. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house. Now, maybe this doesn't mean much to you, because when I read it, it kind of just went over my head. There's something significant that's just happened here. If you know anything about the temple, outer court, inner court, the temple itself, there's a inner sanctum, and then you get to the Holy of Holies. Inside the Holy of Holies, you had the Ark of the Covenant. You had then the presence of God would rest over this Ark. And only once a year could a priest go in here. But what happens here is that the glory of God, who would always reside over the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies, has moved. It's moved from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house. And so God has now left the Holy of Holies. He's still in the temple, but he's moved to the threshold of the temple or his house. This is going to signify the beginning of the judgment of Israel that's coming. And God's, God's moving away from his house, his place, his temple. And this signifies the beginning of his withdrawal, of his divine protection and presence. Now the good news is, if you continue reading verse 3 through verse 7, we get a glimmer of hope. God commands this man in linen to go out into the city and mark the foreheads of the righteous. And the righteous are defined by those who are weeping over the state of Jerusalem. And so that's the task for the man in linen. These six executioners, however, are then told to go kill everybody, everybody in the city who are not sealed with a mark from the man in linen. And so the angelic men go out. They obey the command. The temple courts were then strewn with the bodies of these elders, which is where they started. 
and then the rest of the people in the city. So it was like an act of ultimate defilement to God's own temple. And at this point, Ezekiel is distraught, as you might be. Verse 8 of chapter 9. And while they were striking, and I was left alone, I fell upon my face and cried, Ah, Lord God. Will you destroy all the remnant of Israel in the outpouring of your wrath on Jerusalem? Ezekiel saying, whoa, what God, this is bad. This is evil. This is this. Is, I don't understand it. Are you just going to kill everybody? Is there going to be anybody left? What's happening? And God basically responds and says, Ezekiel, what's done is done. What I've decreed is decreed. Judgment is coming. But we also remember, and you get the picture at the very end of chapter 9, that the man in linen comes back and says, it is done. So we have a, a little glimpse, a little, little glimpse of hope saying the man in linen has marked some people. There is still a righteous remnant left in Jerusalem. And so that brings us now then to chapter 10. Still within the same vision of Ezekiel. And it's going to begin with a further description of the glory of God that expands on his first vision in chapter 1. I'm going to have a disclaimer about this in just a minute. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to put up an artist rendering of how they interpret the verses that I'm about to read. And this is where I encourage you to kind of look up there and listen to me or just kind of scan through um, your Bible. It may not make, I had to read it probably 20 times to kind of, get my head wrapped around it. So maybe this will help you kind of picture some things. I have a disclaimer coming. We'll deal with it after we read the text, okay? Verse 1 and verse 2 describes the throne of God as Ezekiel sees it. So this would be the top portion of, of this picture. Then I looked, and behold, on the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim, there appeared above them something like sapphire, in an appearance like a throne. And he said to the man clothed in linen, Go in among the whirling wheels underneath the cherubim. Fill your hands with burning coals from between the cherubim and scatter them over the city. And he went in before my eyes. So we get this first picture of the throne of God, kind of this top seat above the firmament that's pictured there. And Ezekiel is seeing the man in linen commanded to go inside and underneath and in between these wheels and these cherubim, and to get this fire, these coals, which is going to be representative of the judgment that's about to fall on the city. In verses 3 through 5, now Ezekiel is going to describe this cloud of God's glory. This is what I believe that we see referred to time and time again, actually throughout the Old Testament. You might be more familiar with the word Shekinah glory of God. This is how... Ezekiel describes it. Now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the house when the man went in, and a cloud filled the inner court. And the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house. And the house was filled with a cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. And the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard as far as the outer court, like the voice of God Almighty when he speaks. And then you get a further picture of the man in linen underneath and amongst this throne. And he receives the burning coals from the cherubim. And I think this is showing the reader and showing Ezekiel that the judgment that's about to come to Jerusalem is at the hand of the Lord God Almighty. This is not about the Babylonians or anybody else. 
This is God bringing judgment, yes, even on his own people. Then we get to verse, verses 9 through 14, where Ezekiel begins to describe the cherubim that he sees. And there's two aspects to these. And I looked, and behold, there were four wheels besides the cherubim, one besides each cherub, and the appearance of the wheels was like sparkling barrel. And as for their appearance, the four had the same likeness, as if a wheel were within a wheel. When they went, they went in any of their four directions without turning as they went. But in whatever direction the front wheel faced, the others followed without turning as they went. And their whole body, their rims, their spokes, their wings, and the wheels were full of eyes all around. The wheels that the four of them had. Verse 13. As for the wheels, they were called in my hearing the whirling wheels. And every one had four faces. The first face was the face of a cherub, and the second face was a human face, and the third face of a lion, and the fourth the face of an eagle. And the cherubim mounted up. These were the living creatures that I saw by the Chibar Canal, chapter 1. And when the cherubim went, the wheels went beside them. And when the cherubim lifted up their wings to mount up from the earth, the wheels did not turn from beside them. When they stood still, these stood still. And when they mounted up, these mounted up with them. For the spirit of the living creatures was in them. You got all that? You so blessed we can go eat lunch? So we're going to pause here just for a couple disclaimers. While Ezekiel is describing what he's actually seeing, the throne and the glory of God, and, and it's described in detail, I don't believe the point of Ezekiel's vision is for us to try to draw a picture and understand exactly all that's going on here. Maybe this is very similar to what Ezekiel saw. It could be totally wrong. So don't equate this with gospel or Ezekiel. This is just an artist rendering trying to put all the pieces together. This is a heavenly vision being described in human terms. But you might find it helpful to look at. It kind of makes sense when you read through it a little bit. Now, what it is definitely meant to describe, though, is how otherworldly the glory of God is. He is outside. He is separate. He is holy. He is apart. And he is, by nature, incomprehensible. And this is what's being communicated here by Ezekiel. And as we read this, even if it doesn't look like that in particular, we are supposed to stand back in awe. We are supposed to have a little bit of wonder, maybe a little bit of fear or confusion, because this is the glory of the Lord. We wonder at its power. We marvel at its greatness. As we read through the scene, or as you go home and read through it again, you, you see that Ezekiel is almost on the verge of sensory overload. There's lights, and there's fires, and there's whirling sounds like the wind and the angel's wings, and it's, it's moving, but it's still all at the same time. And what are you supposed to look at with, with all of these things? Then, then you're looking at them, and they're spinning, but then they also have eyes everywhere. And I think that's the point. It is overwhelming. We can't understand it, but we should stand back in marvel and awe in who God is in the face of his glory. 
This is certainly no small thing that Ezekiel is describing. I would say what it's also describing would be some of the glorious aspects of God's character. He goes everywhere. He sees everything. He rules over all. There is no realm in which he does not touch. He also is never turning and never changing. I think some of those principles or symbols are embedded in in this vision as he unpacks who God is and what his glory looks like. All that being said, that's the bulk of chapter 10, but I don't believe it's the point of chapter 10. I think the point of chapter 10 is found in verses 18 and 19. So if you don't understand all of that, that's okay. Get the next two verses. Verse 18 of chapter 10. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out with the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. Here's another movement. He's gone from the glory of God has moved from the holy of holies to the edge of the temple structure. But now it moves again, and there's almost this anticipation. It's almost a slow or reluctant moving away from the temple. But now he's out of the temple, he's into the courtyard, and he's at the edge of the gate. This has been a progression of God's movement away from his holy place, the place where he met with Israel. And now it stands at the door of the east gate, on the precipice of leaving the temple complex altogether, which is what happens in chapter 11, verse 22. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings of chapter 11 with wheels beside them, and the glory of God, of the God of Israel was over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. And so the picture is the glory of God leaves the temple complex through the east gate to the adjacent mountain, which is the Mount of Olives. This is where the vision ends for Ezekiel. And so all of a sudden he finds himself back in Babylon, sitting in his house. I figure his eyes are about this big as he tries to convey this vision to the other exiles there with him. So we've covered a lot. Uh, so far. Maybe it's hopefully been interesting uh, for you, but you might also be wondering, okay, but what does any of this have to do with me here today? Well, I'm not going to tell you quite yet. It's going to come at the end, so hang on. But I want us to consider first a sobering lesson that's going to be pulled from chapter 10. Okay, God is showing Ezekiel this grand vision of his glory in the temple. He's seen portions of that before. But the emphasis, again, is on God's departure, the glory of God leaving the temple. And the result of this, Ezekiel sees this vision and he's distraught. There's probably a few reasons for this. I think he's distraught because this is his people, this is his temple, this is his city. But also, I wonder if he's distraught 
because he knows that people within the city and within the temple have no idea. And the question is, why? Why don't the people have any idea? I think there's an implication here that when the glory of God departs, because that was a vision of something that's coming, but when the glory of God departs the temple, I don't think the people will even notice. I don't think the people will notice until the judgment of God falls down on them. You see, they had fallen so far from God that they had forgotten the significance of the temple, which wasn't the temple at all. The significance of the temple was that it was the place where God met with his people. It was the thing that symbolized and it was the physical, the real physical manifestation of God's presence among his people. And instead, the leaders of Jerusalem, the people in Jerusalem, just assume because, well, we've got the temple of God, so that's where God lives and he's right there. And as long as we have the temple, then we've got God and we will be protected and we will be blessed and everything will be fine. That's exactly what Jeremiah describes in Jeremiah chapter 7. Same scenario and situation and time frame. So what did happen? Well, I don't know the answer to this. What happened when God's glory departed the temple and the city? My best guess is that in the eyes of the people, nothing changed. Temple was still there. City was still there. And you know what they did? They kept going to temple. Now, they kept offering the idols. They kept doing their normal things and their everyday go to the temple in Jerusalem. They had no clue that the glory of God had departed. And I'm not sure in our context of the, the church today that we quite understand the significance of how monumental this shift was for the people of God. Where they had gotten to a place where they had just completely ignored, neglected, and wouldn't even recognize God's presence anymore. It's tragic not just because of the immediate people in the immediate temple, but it's tragic because this idea of God's presence or God dwelling with his people, it didn't originate with the construction of the temple. Do you know where it started? At creation, at the beginning, in Eden, God creates Adam and Eve. And what do you see him doing with Adam and Eve? Walking with them in the garden, in the cool of the day. This was God's intention, that we humans would enjoy the presence of God, the fellowship of God, and be and live with him. But sin entered the world. And sin entered the world and created a separation between God and man. Adam and Eve then were kicked out of the east gate of Eden. And now there's a wall, a separation between them and the direct presence of God. But that's not where their story ends. You see, because God still has a desire to dwell with his people. And so you fast forward and you get to the Exodus. And you see Moses leading the people of God out of Egypt. One of the first things that we see in terms of God's presence and his people is God meets the people of Israel along with Moses at the base of the mountain, at Mount Sinai. 
what happens there? You're going to start to hear a repetitive pattern. You hear thunder and lightning. You see a thick cloud on the mountain and you hear a loud trumpet blast. They're on the border of sensory overload and they are frightened. You go for us, Moses. We can't go. God would then go on to give Moses instructions on building the tabernacle, the the portable prototype for what would become the temple later. Gives him the instructions, building the tabernacle and all its furnishings. Why? The answer is in Exodus 25, verse 8. God tells Moses, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. This is God's intention from the beginning of time. And then in Exodus 29, God says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and I will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. What God was saying was, it's not just my presence that you need, but my presence leads to your acceptance and understanding and knowing me for who I am and I am the Lord God. This is integral for the people of God. And so when the tabernacle is complete, in Exodus 40, we once again see the glory of the Lord arriving on the scene. What do we see? The cloud covering the tent of meeting. You see the glory of the Lord filling the tabernacle. Moses couldn't even go in because of how magnificent the glory of the Lord was that filled the entire place. The cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle day by day. Fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. And so now you have God's presence manifested in a, in a little different, unique way where we had this pillar of cloud during, uh, during the day and a pillar of fire at night. And this is what led God's people. It was assurance, again, of his presence, his protection, and his relationship with his people. And so generations later, the people have settled into the promised land. We see the construction of the temple in Jerusalem by Solomon. And this is the temple that we're reading about and seeing in Ezekiel here this morning. When the temple is complete, Solomon prays over the temple in 1 Kings 8. And it's also recorded in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. And what do we say? What do we see? I won't read it all, but you might can guess. We see fire coming down from heaven. We see the glory of the Lord filling the temple. And it results in worship. It results in the people giving thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good. For the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. You see, this is a pattern that has been established from the beginning of all things, that God desires a presence among his people, that God has consistently pursued a dwelling place where his people can come and worship and be assured of his presence. This is why the problem in Ezekiel 8 through 11 is so monumentally huge. This is a departure from what we've seen all throughout God's relationship with his people. All that's left now is God is going to judge his people. And, and I, I ask, like, well, how? How could the people of God, knowing all of that and seeing how God has worked and all the things they've done, how could the people of God fall so far? And I'm sure there's many answers. And we could just jump right to application and talk about quite a few different things. We could talk about the innate sinfulness of man. We could talk about the temptations of the world and the pressures of other cultures. 
We could talk about the neglect of one generation passing the truth to the next generation about God. We could talk about the dangers of disobedience and pride and, and all those things, and they would be fair applications. But I want to go one step deeper and just say there's really one fundamental reason why the people of God have fallen so far, and it's simply this. They forgot the significance of God's presence. They forgot the significance of God's presence. If they would have esteemed that, knew that, knew what a big deal and how important it was, the other stuff would have never happened. They forgot the significance of God's presence. They assumed that having the temple was good enough, but they missed the significance of the relational aspect of he is our God and we are his people. That was gone in the people of Israel. And so the people of Israel will soon learn in Ezekiel's time that God is not and will not be confined to a particular place, even if that place is a temple that was built in his name. The result of Israel's presumption is devastating. What we see, or what Ezekiel saw, very soon after these visions was the Babylonians come in in 586, utterly destroy the temple and the city of Jerusalem, and then burn it on top of that. This is exactly what God had said was going to happen, and it comes to fruition through the hand of the Babylonians, which we know was guided by the hand of God himself. Many people in Israel in Jerusalem were killed. The survivors, the majority of them, were taken then into the captivity in Babylon. The people of Israel were done as a nation who had a place and a city and a temple. There were survivors, and we know, we will remember, and we'll hit in just a second, there was a remnant, but now they're in Babylon. They're in captivity, no longer in their place, in their land with their God. And so after 70 years of captivity, the people would return to Jerusalem. And they would begin to rebuild the altar and the temple and the city walls. That's recorded in Ezra and Nehemiah. But there's something that's blatantly missing from the reconstruction. Even though we see the recording of the altar, the temple, the city and its walls. Do you know what we never see again? There's no mention of, at least, there's no mention of the return of the glory of God. There's no mention of the physical presence of God in the midst of his people. Even when the temple was rebuilt. Over the next 400 years, Jerusalem will be ruled by Gentiles who would alternatingly build up and then defile the temple. And it was just this big mess for about 400 years till we get to 40 years before the birth of Christ, about 39 B.C. And then Herod takes control. And Herod starts renovating and expanding this temple. And this is, would be the temple that we call the second temple, sometimes called Herod's temple, would have been the temple that we read about in the New Testament with Jesus. But we're not there yet because the Old Testament comes to a close and, and we're left with this deafening silence from God. We're left wondering, well, well what's going to happen to God's people? And if, is, is God's glory just gone? 
forever? Is his presence gone forever? Or will we ever see it again? And this is where we have to go back to Ezekiel 11 one more time before the glory of God departed the city. So we're back in the vision. Ezekiel is prophesying the judgments to come and an elder of the city drops down in front of him. And it causes him to repeat the same refrain, God, are you going to kill all the remnant? Is there going to be any survivors? And here's a key text, Ezekiel chapter 11, it's verses 19 and 20. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. God's saying, it's not over. There's a future and it looks like this. Look at them, one heart, one spirit. Remove the heart of stone, make it a heart of flesh so that they might walk in my statute, keep my rules, obey them. Jerusalem is destroyed. Ezekiel is still on the scene. And God reiterates this promise after the destruction of the temple and the city. Ezekiel 36, I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleanness. How will that happen? Verse 26, I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of my flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. Same promise also relayed by a prophet contemporary of Ezekiel, Jeremiah 31. The more famous of the passages, probably. Behold, the days are coming. It's coming. It's not in the future. It's coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and Judah. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So we have these promises, except we still don't have the presence of God. We still have this period of silence. And we're left wondering. Until the most monumental day in all of human history. John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and tabernacled and pitched his tent and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Literally, God came and tabernacled, pitched his tent among his people once again. But this time, not in a physical tent or temple, but where? In the person of Christ, who is the human expression of God's glory. And this is why in Matthew 1, we see the angel go to Joseph and say, You shall call his name Jesus. And this is the fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah 7. And his name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. God has not forgotten his people. So we fast forward, and we really have to fast forward to the last hours of Jesus' life. He knows that he's about to be betrayed, arrested, crucified. But he also knows there's something greater coming. And so at the Last Supper, Christ connects his ministry, his imminent death and resurrection, with a new covenant that was promised to his people through Ezekiel and Jeremiah which are the words that we hear each time we share communion together. This cup that is poured out for you in the new covenant in my blood. And so from there, we have death, burial, resurrection. Christ has said, 
I would say he has inaugurated the new covenant saying, this is, this is what I'm here for. This is why I came. Before his death, burial, and resurrection, in the hours after the Last Supper, Jesus repeatedly says, hey, I'm leaving you. I'm leaving you. And the disciples are getting nervous. They're getting worried, which is understandable because this is the glory of God. This is our connection with the Father. What happens? Is he going to leave us? Then what do we do? What happens to our connection to God if we lose Jesus? And so Jesus says in John 14, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and in you. He would go on to repeat these same things over the next a few times over the next couple of chapters. The helper, the Holy Spirit, the Father is going to send him in my name. He's going to teach you all things. It's actually good that I go so that you can receive the helper. I will send him to you. John 16, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you in all truth. He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. And then we have the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. He's in his glorified body. And in Acts 1, do you know where we find him? On the Mount of Olives. You know what we see? The ascension of Christ. Going up to heaven in a cloud of glory. But it's not over because God has made this promise. And so we get to Acts chapter 2 and see the fulfillment of God's promise. The day of Pentecost has arrived. See if this sounds familiar. And suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. And the Spirit gave them utterance. So now, where is the presence of God? It rests in his people. Just as Jesus had promised. This is the assurance that what Christ had spoke of in the upper room was the inauguration of the new covenant. Ezekiel 11, 19 and 20, one more time, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. They shall be my people. I will be their God. You keep going through the New Testament. We won't. I'll skim because we're out of time. Keep going through the New Testament. Paul and Peter take this metaphor, describe the believer and the church, that we are living stones being built up together into what? A spiritual house. Who then are we? A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That's Peter. Paul, Ephesians 2, we're growing together into what? A holy temple in the Lord. We're being built together into what? A dwelling place for God by the Spirit, whom Christ is the cornerstone. He connects God's desire to dwell in the midst of his people. We saw way back in Exodus 25. Now with the indwelling of the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 3, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? So finally we answer the question, what does all this mean for us today? What does it have anything to do with Ezekiel? I hope this helps us realize that there's really one answer to why our church, any church for that matter, that's worth being a part of, is different than a country club. 
we have the Spirit of God. We have what the world doesn't have. We have the Spirit of God. Israel in Ezekiel's day was so far gone that I don't think they even noticed when the Spirit of God, the glory of God, departed from the temple. And now thankfully, Christ has assured us that once we receive the Spirit, He's not leaving. But that doesn't mean that we don't need to be intentional in the way we acknowledge or pursue His presence. There's a sobering question, which basically I read in some random book that started me on this whole tangent. And it was this. If God's presence left your church, would anyone notice? Or would it just keep on going because you don't really need God anyway? You're getting together, you're having a good time, you're going golf and you're singing songs. We all generally get along and like each other. There's a few people that you hang out with during the week. You go to home group, they have good snacks. What do you need God for? And if the, the Spirit of God left, well, the church will look largely the same. If that's true, we're in danger. We're in danger of falling in the same trap as Ezekiel 10. We have neglected, we have misunderstood, and we have not appreciated the presence of God. This is what defines the church. This is what makes the church different than a country club or any other social organization on this planet. We have the Spirit of God. May it transform us individually. 2 Corinthians 3.18, you should go read the whole thing, talking about how we're ministers of the new covenant, but talking specifically about the Spirit and how the Spirit works. And in verse 18, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. We need to know how magnificent that statement is. Everything that we just read in Ezekiel, Paul says, yeah, we with unveiled face behold the glory of God in Christ. We're being transformed into the same image, that's Christ, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is spirit. This starts in our individual hearts. We need to be transformed by the presence of God. Are you aware of his presence today? Are you seeking his presence today? Are you looking to be sensitive to his presence? Are you cultivating your relationship with God? This is where you go and where you turn when things get hard, when trials come. Do you go to the presence of God? We don't have to go to a temple and through a whole bunch of stuff or through a priest. We go to Christ by his spirit who indwells in us. But let us change us. May it transform us corporately. This shouldn't just happen in isolation. We are called the church. We are members individually of one body, one house. Sunday school and Bible study here at the chapel should be more than gaining knowledge. We're learning about who God is. We're getting to know the one who dwells among us. Home groups become more than snacks, fellowship, or even connection. It becomes true spiritual care as we pray for one another, encourage one another, uplift one another. We it transforms our giving. We don't give just to keep the lights on and pay my salary. No, we understand that if God is at work in us and we are here in one body, then we want to participate in God's kingdom work. And there's some things that we can do together. And we need a place where we can come and do this work in the Spirit together. When we come together and, and gather corporately for worship, 
we're talking about the supernatural element. When we walk in the doors on Sunday, we recognize that we are here to hear from God. We are here to worship Him. We are acknowledging when we show up as individuals, as part of this body, that we are just one piece of the whole, that we are just one stone in the temple, that we are just one priest in a kingdom of priests. And we are challenged to see God more clearly, to worship Him in spirit, to stand in awe of who He is and what He has done. And lastly, may it transform us externally. And here is where another real power and benefit of having the Spirit of God indwelling in us comes. We realize that when we walk out these doors in just a few moments, God's presence doesn't stay here, doesn't go hide in the back room, it's not confined to a space or a temple. We take the presence of God out these doors. And that is our opportunity then to show the world that we are different than a country club to show the world a God who is worthy of worship, to show the world the holiness and the glory of God and how it has changed us and transformed us. So we go from here with the presence of God to transform the people around us, whether it be our families, our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers, or the stranger we meet on the street. We go with the presence and spirit of God. We become the hands and feet of God himself, empowered by his spirit within us. Now listen, the promise of the new covenant has not been fully realized. There's things that are coming that are, the culmination has not got here yet. But right now, we are tasting the reality of God dwelling among us even today. As we do await the day that Jesus will once again return to where the Mount of Olives. For when all things are done, And we're standing at the precipice of the rest of time. God establishes his kingdom forever. We experience then God's intention that stretches back all the way to the Garden of Eden. We have uninhibited fellowship and relationship with God, our creator. Which is why Revelation 22, it says, There will be no temple in the city. For his temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. That is our future blessed hope. But let's not miss the opportunity that we have now to experience and enjoy the presence of God today. Will you pray with me? Dear Lord, I thank you for your truth. I thank you for your word. I thank you that this is about you and not about us. This is about what you are doing in in with and for your people. Lord, I pray that you would help us understand these things, apply these things, that we would consider and think of of how we are taking uh, advantage or for granted your presence in our life. Help, have, help us to have a desire and a hunger for you. We pray in your name. Amen.